Our scripture passage this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 17 and reading to the end of the chapter. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hang you, hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that of your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go two miles Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, <clears throat> Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. <clears throat> for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, to be sons of such a father. For you to mark out a destiny like this for us is it's just overwhelming. And for you to not leave us to ourselves, but to send your son to be this for us so that we might be made like him. Oh, Father. You have loved your enemies. You have caused much more than the sun, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good. You have caused your son to rise on that cross for us. And so, would you keep us now? We don't want to be like those that Jesus describes here who, who take the least of the commandments and relaxes them. We want we don't want to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We want to know what it means in the gospel to to teach and do these things that Jesus has taught us now. So we pray for your spirit's ministry for that great end. And we pray also today that that you would use this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, those who already are his, that you would use this conversation to be a saving uh, means in the lives of those who are here this morning and are not yet joined to Christ savingly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I often think uh, about uh, advice that I received from one of my uh, professors in seminary. Um, and I thought about it a lot this week as I was reading the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over again. And he said to me, Mike, one of the ways that you can uh, monitor your own gospel faithfulness in your preaching ministry as you're in the church is that you should you should be to the extent you're being faithful to the gospel. You should be receiving uh, two kinds of criticism basically simultaneously. One criticism is some people should criticize you uh, for sounding like you're an antinomian, meaning that you don't think the law of God matters at all. You're so tilted in the direction of grace that people get worried that you don't think the law of God matters. And at the same time, you should also be receiving a criticism from some that uh, to the effect that you sound like a legalist. That you're so uh, your preaching is so full of the holiness of God and the grace of God that you're vulnerable to both criticisms at the same time. Of course, he gets that from the New Testament, right? I mean, that's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. Right? Oh, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? Holiness of God doesn't matter because of the grace of God. 
And of course, Paul got that criticism because Jesus got that criticism. This guy hangs out with tax collectors and prostitutes. You read the Sermon on the Mount this morning, the passage that Don just read for us, and you probably think that Jesus sounds like a legalist. Well, he's not a legalist. Uh, As we'll see in a minute, legalists don't care about the holiness of God. Only the gospel enables you to care about the law of God. Really. And only the gospel enables you to really care about the grace of God. Because only the gospel brings the fullness of the Father to us. But this morning, as we look at this very famous stretch of the Sermon on the Mount, we have got to be clear about the relationship between a Christian and the law of God. And this is Jesus' great burden in this passage, is to help his disciples, help those who belong to him, to understand their relationship to the law of God. And he says that we've got to understand it through our relationship with him. And so this morning I want to look at this great theme uh, under three headings with you. First is the meaning of the law. Jesus teaches us about the meaning of the law. Second, Jesus teaches us about the crisis of the law. And thirdly, Jesus teaches us about the law's fulfillment or the fulfillment of the law. Let's think first about uh, the meaning of the law. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that it's very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, and I alluded to it when we were doing our prayer of confession, that Jesus is a great burden when it comes to teaching his disciples what the meaning of the law is, is that he may, he's making the point that the law is personal. And I don't mean by that what we tend to mean by the word personal. And in our culture, when we hear the word personal, we think private. Well, that's personal. No, that's not what I mean. I mean, Jesus is... Jesus is saying anything but that, right? It's, it's not a private or personal uh, or individual matter. What I mean by personal is that Jesus is showing us that the law is about persons. It's about two persons in particular, the Father, who is the lawgiver, and Jesus himself, who is the law fulfiller. So notice uh, first w- how Jesus uh, links uh, the law and his explanation of the law. Uh, with the Father's character, the giver of the law. And, and this is so important, guys. This is just so critical. One of the things I love about Reformed theology, and one of the reasons I love covenant theology, is because you get the whole Bible. And we don't pit parts of the Bible against one another. You know, whatever your view is of the law of God and its relationship to the gospel, you have to be able to understand how Psalm 119 is a love song to God and isn't an obsolete thing. You need to be able to understand how it is that someone could say to God, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day and not be an idolater. And let me tell you what the key is. The key is that in the Bible, and Jesus confirms that for us here, the law of God is not an abstract set of rules or body of legislation. It's a portrait of the ruler. 
They're not meant to be understood. The various Old Testament laws are not meant to be understood as just a a series of impersonal edicts that come from the king. They're meant to be understood as the portrait of the king. Who is our heavenly father. So that's why Jesus concludes the way he does in verse 48 in chapter 5. All that, you know, he's talking about the law and explaining, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, and, and unfolding uh, various aspects of the Ten Commandments and other aspects of, of the law. And then all of a sudden, at verse 48, it feels like, all of a sudden he says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, where's that coming from? Well, I'll tell you where it's coming from. Jesus... The last time he explicitly mentioned the Father was in verse 16 that we looked at last week. But his point in verse 48 is everything between verse 17 and verse 48 is all about the Father. I'm talking about him to you. I'm talking about his character. Whatever the moral perfection is that the law requires and prescribes for the people of God, it is ultimately a description of the Father's character. And so this is why it is so concerning to me when I see so often Christians having a low view of God's law. You know, if I, if I saw in my house my kids with a picture of me in their room with a big, if I walked into Luke's room, for example, and there was a picture of me on the, on the uh, on his bulletin board. There is not, I assure you, by the way. But let's just say, hypothetically, in a possible world, there was one. And there was a big black X through it. And then over dinner, I said, hey, uh, Luke, uh, I happened to go into your room. And I saw that picture of me with a big black X through it. Kind of makes me feel like you don't love me. And if Luke said to me, no, Dad, I really do love you. Well, do you think I ought to believe him? If he's defaced and ignored and disregarded my picture, how can he not love? How how can he really love me? Friends, you you can't cast away the law of God. And I want you to think about just the various examples that Jesus gives here. He He works through six scenarios. And every one of them is... A picture of the Father. Every one of them is a picture of the goodness and the moral excellence of the Father. You know, in the first set of verses, 21 through 26, Jesus talks about anger and and talks about insults and, and talks about the need to reconcile and the value of relationships. Friends, that tells us a lot about our Father. It tells us about God caring about relationships, God acting, being somebody who wants to end estrangement, who values reconciliation so mightily. He's a reconciler and he's also a righteous judge and he's the defender of his people so that if I so much as insult a brother and call him or her an idiot... That is such a serious offense that eternity is implicated. Oh, what that says about God's love for his creatures and for his children. And in the second example, really the second and third examples about 
uh, sexual purity and marriage. Those really those really need to be seen together. They're two aspects or features of sexual purity. And friends, what that shows us is that God evaluates us down to our hearts. He's not fooled by the externals and he values covenant and he values purity. And in the next example, verses 33 through 37, God is a truth teller. The reason our yes should be yes and our no should be no is because God's always are. And then in verses 38 through 42 and 43 through 47, the last section, this amazing and deeply challenging vision of how the disciples of Jesus are supposed to respond to evil that they experience in relationships. We're not supposed to return evil for good, not supposed to retaliate. We're not even supposed to resist, but we're supposed to respond in unbounded generosity and love for our enemies and generosity toward our enemies. Why? Where does that come from? Because it's exactly who our father is. Who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and who sends the rain on the just and the unjust is a picture of the Father. So don't put a black X through it. But it's also a picture of Jesus who is not just the lawgiver. Jesus is, the, is, is also giving us a picture of himself as the fulfiller of the law. It's a very beautiful portrait of the law and portrait of Jesus. And there are two things that Jesus emphasizes about himself in verses 17 through 20 in his relationship to the law in terms of how he is the fulfiller of the law. Two aspects. First, that Jesus comes under the law as a man. And second, that Jesus stands over the law in his deity. First, to think about uh, what Jesus is showing us about himself, how he stands under the law as a man. I mean, he has come into the world to stand under the law. We read it this morning, Galatians 4, right before the service, that, that Jesus was born as a man, born under the law, right, to de- redeem those who are under the law. And there's a sense in which when you read the law from the Old Testament, and it's multifaceted character. One way to think about that law is that it's, it's drawing a portrait of the ideal covenant servant, right? That God has, through the various aspects of the law that relate to religious life, relate to civil life, relate to every area of life, family life, every area, that it's a picture. You take the whole thing together. It's a picture of the man or the woman or the child who is the covenant servant that God deserves. And until Jesus comes, that is just a silhouette that no life actually fills in. And Jesus comes and fulfills that law with a living, breathing life. He stands under the law as a man because none of us ever have filled in that silhouette. But Jesus also stands over the law in his deity. And, and this really is, I think, the most shocking thing. Uh, about if you read uh, chapter 5, the most shocking thing that Jesus has to say is really not about his relationship to the law, but about the law's relationship to him. You notice how authoritatively he speaks here? 
about the law nine times, nine times. In these verses, he uses a formulas like this, where he's asserting his authority as the law's ultimate interpreter. And he says things like, for truly, I say to you twice, verses 18 and 26, for I tell you, verse 20, but I say to you, verses 20, 22, 30, uh, 20, excuse me, 22, 28, 32, 34, 39 and 44. What's he doing? He's saying, I'm the one. Who has, I'm the interpreter of the law who has, whose interpretations must bind your conscience. Friends, you, you have to see that for what that is. There's only one being in the universe who has the authority in his interpretations of the law to bind the consciences of men, and that being is God. And Jesus is claiming for himself the ultimate, the ultimate authority. So the meaning of the law is that it's a picture not only of the Father, but also of Jesus in his authority. And that means that uh, there are no competing interpretations of the law with Jesus's. He is the ultimate revealer of the will of God. And that leads to our second point, which is the crisis of the law. And I don't know if you felt it. I, I felt it all week. I felt it again while Don was reading it. You, you listen to this chapter. You read this chapter. Do you not feel the crisis? Do you not feel the gap between where your life is and the, not only the character of the Father and the character of Jesus, but the destiny that they have marked out for us? Oh, it is a great crisis. If we're honest about it, I, I, I can't draw the strands together for you yet, but if you at least feel the weight of the passage, that's such a good sign. I want to encourage you. If you feel overwhelmed, be encouraged, because it means that there's some trace of life. And Jesus shows us that there's this head-on collision, that what the crisis of the law is that Jesus describes is there's a head-on collision between the response of men to the law and the reach of of God's law. So there's this universal response of men to the law of God on the one hand, and then there's this universal, inescapable reach of God's law on the other. And that's the crisis of the law that calls for a solution. Now, let's think about the first side of that collision, man's response to the law. And that's in verses 19 and 20 that Jesus describes this. And what's interesting about it is he describes only one response. All men, according to Jesus, have one response to the law and only one. Look at what he says in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know if you noticed that, if you read it in context or you read the, the flow of Jesus' thought or if it struck you. But you notice that Jesus only talks about one possible response to the law, relaxing the commandments, right? Now, we might think that Jesus would identify two sets of abuses in response to the law, right? We might think that Jesus would criticize people who who underreact to the law of God and who minimize it. And we might also expect him at the same time to criticize those who overreact to the law of God and who make it harder than it should be. But you notice that this is missing. 
And he only talks about one response. That of relaxing or literally loosing the commandments of God. I know the NIV translates it breaks. That's not what the word means. It's about letting go. And Jesus says, guess what? All men. The reason he doesn't talk about a scenario in which men make the law of God harder than it is is because no man ever does. There's only one response among men. We downplay the law of God. We let it loose. We underestimate its seriousness. We diminish it. We cut ourselves off from it. We find loopholes in it. We argue with it. We qualify it. We jettison it. We ignore it. There's all kinds of things that we do, but they all constitute that relaxing of the law. There's one response that all men in all ages have to the law of God, and it is to relax it because all men lower the standards of holiness that actually obtain in a universe that is governed by the holy God who is our Father. No one in the history of the universe has ever overstated the holiness of God. What's even more shocking than that, though, is that Jesus says there are two paths to that result. Now, sure. Um, before I was a Christian, um, I was on the path to that result. That was very obvious. Law of God. <clears throat> That's really easy to see. And maybe some of you are on that path. I pray you'll leave it this morning because it, it doesn't lead away from God. It actually leads to God, but God not as your Redeemer, God as your judge. But Jesus talks, that path is easy to see to that result, dismissing the law of God altogether, diminishing it, all that kind of stuff, very obvious. But you notice Jesus talks about, mainly emphasizes another path, And I want you to think about the connection between what he says all men do with respect to the law of God in verse 19 and then the illustration, the warning he gives in verse 20, because these things are connected. So after saying that uh, the people who relax the commandments of God will be called least in the kingdom of heaven in verse 19, he then says in verse 24, I tell you four, meaning he's connecting the thought that he's about to announce in verse 20 with what he just described in verse 19. That means these thoughts are joined in his mind. And he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the point? What's the connection? The connection is this. Jesus is saying to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, the most religious people of the day, the most meticulously observant to the form of the law, those are law relaxers. Now, that doesn't shock us like it would have shocked his disciples. What Jesus is saying is this other path to relaxing the law of God and diminishing it is a path that's very religious, that pays uh, meticulous attention to the particular details 
of the laws of God. And Jesus says that there is a kind of religiosity that pays attention so rigorously and so passionately to the forms, the religious forms, that what they're really doing is relaxing the commandments of God because their trust is is in their ability to keep those commandments. And if that's how you live, if you are legalistic in that sense, that your standing before God is a function of the degree to which you conform to those rules by your own effort, it, then you by necessity have to diminish those laws. Because otherwise you can't live with yourself. You've got to create loopholes because your performance will never match that standard. So you've got to whittle away at the implications of the law. You've got to bring them closer to the surface, make them less deep and more shallow. And you've got to elevate your own performance. And Jesus says that that's what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. He's not calling his disciples to that kind of shallow observance of God's law. He's going for the heart. Friends, you see where this is going. The crisis of the law has a bullseye on the pride of men. The crisis of the law, friends, not just for just Jesus' disciples here, but for all of us, is that Jesus is, is being so honest and clear with us about what God's standard is that when we face that standard, we are meant to repent that we ever thought that within the reach of our lives was a righteousness or a perfection that would qualify us on our own to be accepted by God and to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is the first step of life to acknowledge that there is nothing in me. There has been nothing in me. There is nothing in me. There never could be anything in me to meet the standard of God's actual righteousness so high is that standard. And until we can be honest about our tendency to elevate ourselves and to bring that standard down, we will not be receptive to the gospel. And we will not make progress in the gospel. And the gospel will only be as powerful as that gap between our elevated view of our own righteousness and the lowered view of God's holiness. But if we view those two things in the way that Scripture views them, then the gospel opens up. And Jesus wants us to see the gospel and experience his work in its true proportions, not some cartoon caricature that we can manage, that we can essentially have Jesus in the boardroom as a consultant and we essentially work out the project of our own salvation. He wants his disciples to be clear. And he makes that point. He makes that point by talking about the law and the dimensions of the law and the reach of the law. Think about how high Jesus describes the law's reach to be. The moral law, morality, right? The biblical law is not the creation of men. It's not something that men gathered together. 
and we figured out what, what would best manage and govern our society. These aren't societal norms that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about law that comes from on high and is given to men, uh, not, not not conceived by man and then given to God, but that God gives to us, not as a suggestion, but as our Creator with authority over our lives that binds every single human being. Because you either got it on stone tablets or you got it written on the tablet of your heart. But no matter where you grew up, if you are a human being, no matter when you lived, no matter where you lived, you, if you are a human being or made in the image of God, and part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that God's law is written on your heart. You have a conscience. We didn't invent it. And we're not free to adapt it. Think about what Jesus says about the length of the law's reach. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, smallest little dot, right? Not a dot, a stroke, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It's not... The law is not an artifact of some historical age or some culture like over here that we could say, oh, well, those people then believed this and and that law only has applicability within that culture and for that culture. You see, Jesus is saying no. It's not limited to a particular historical age and it's not applicable only in its broad strokes, but in its finest detail. And then how about the breadth of the law's reach? You see, if you think, if you go through these verses that Don read, by the way, you should thank him after the service. That's a long passage. Ruth, he gets a nap this afternoon, okay? He's earned it. But go back through this afternoon and think about all the areas of life, all the arenas of human affairs that Jesus touches in his exposition of the law. He... It covers everything. It covers what we do in worship. It covers all our relationships. It covers our money. It speaks into our bedrooms. It speaks into our thought lives, into our attitudes, addresses every word we speak, uh, even our relationships with our enemies. It has to do with our property and how we respond to people and whether we give everything we see and everyone we see with our eyes. There isn't an area of life our lives, there isn't an arena of human affairs that the, the breadth of the law doesn't touch so that you could possibly live as though you could possibly live with a, OK, now I'm in the law zone. And but out here, there's no relevance to God. That's not the picture. But the but the most challenging, the most shattering thing that Jesus does in terms of explaining the, the law's reach is when he talks about his depth. Because ultimately, you see what he keeps doing is he keeps digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And what he's saying, friends, in all these examples, is that the law's purpose ultimately is that it is the revelation of the will of God. And it is the will of God that the will of men would be the will of God. 
And he addresses that in multiple illustrations. And I want to talk about him in four groups. I want you to think with me about the depth that Jesus shows us in terms of the law's reach. Think about this first example, which is the longest, 21 through 26. Uh, We know these verses. We've read them uh, many times. But notice what Jesus is saying is he's saying that to despise my brother in my heart is to be guilty of murder. Without committing murder. To uh, speak an insult to my brother. uh, Or about my brother subjects me uh, to something way beyond the death penalty which is what the Old Testament prescription for murder was. It subjects me to the eternal hell of fire. And I must must not only act to protect myself against anger, but I have to ask, is my brother angry at me? You see, that's where the... He tells us about both halves. The first half is... Verses 21 and 22. Am I angry against my brother? If I am, I need to watch it. But the second half, verses 23 and 24, I've got to be asking if my brother is angry against me because I have to act in a way to protect him from the corrosive effects of anger. I've got to be a reconciler. And then purity is the great theme in verses 27 through 32. They talk both about the reality of lust and the sanctity of marriage. And in both of those, notice that Jesus is saying that in in A look, a look. Again, the death penalty, right? The death penalty is what the Old Testament law prescribed for adultery. And here Jesus is saying a lustful look not acted upon beyond the level of the heart and the eye. That invokes eternity. That's how holy God is. That's how deep the law goes. That's how contrary to the will of God that thing that seems like such a small thing to us is. And so I've got to act to guard myself and my, and my purity and the way I regard other people. And not only that, but then when he switches to marriage and he talks about divorce, notice it's so interesting how he does this. Because he says, if I wrongfully divorce my wife, right, I violate God's law, verses uh, 31 and 32, But notice what he says, when I wrongfully divorce my wife, I make her commit adultery. That's not what I expect. You see, what he's saying is that the will of God for the sustaining and flourishing of the marriage covenant is so deep and so strong that I, it's not enough to simply act to guard my own sexual purity. I've got to conduct myself in a way that guards the sexual purity of others. And then truth, every word, everything I say, every every intention of our words. Think about how sloppy we are with our promises. And in business, in relationships, I mean, think about all the ways we think to, especially in business, to shape a promise and craft it so that there's a built-in escape hatch in the promise that we can later self-righteously invoke and have our conscience salved. Right? That's why people go to law school. You get rewarded for that. 
And Jesus says, is it a yes? Then say yes. If it's a no, then say no. And then relationships. What a vision of love, right? What an amazing vision of love. God evaluates us according to his standard of love, not our own. This is in verses 38 through 47. Uh, You know, our love has all kinds of limits and God does not. Our love is limited by our desire for retaliation. Our love is limited by our desire to resist uh, evil when we experience it in, in relationships. Our love is limited by our desire to defend our reputation. Someone slapping you on the right cheek, by the way. Someone slapping you on the right cheek. That's, uh, that's a backhanded slap. That's an insult because you could, you could only hit them with the back unless you were left-handed, which would be rare. The vision is of somebody slapping you this way, which would be an ultimate insult. And I thought about that. I thought, you know, when I get insulted when, or when I get slandered, man, the fire burns. And I see what Jesus is saying here. What would it be like to live in a way that acknowledges that the will of God is that I don't go there? That I'm not obsessed with defending myself or preserving myself. Our love is limited to people like us or people who like us. But God's love is for his enemies. And he's generous toward the just and the unjust. His love is perfect. How perfect must he be, friends? You see the collision? The, there's this universal tendency of men to, to diminish the law of God. And there's Jesus coming and saying, but let me tell you what the law really means. It means that the will of man must be the will of God. That is the will of God. And it goes down to the deepest roots of who we are. And so nothing less than that will satisfy God. And that creates a massive crisis because we get to the end of chapter five and we say, wait a second, we're this father is perfect and and his sons must be perfect. But the problem is that none of the candidates for sons are perfect. So how in the world could we ever be his sons? And the answer comes from a son. And that brings us to our final point, the fulfillment of the law. When we uh, read this, and we read what Jesus has to say here, if you're like me, you've got a couple of questions. How in the world can he expect me to live that way? That sure sounds like suicide. How in the world can I ever hope as a human being to ever be that good? If I must be perfect in order to be a son of my father, then friends, how can I ever have any hope of calling God my father? And Jesus has a remarkable answer. And the answer is himself. Let me tell you what I mean. Jesus is not casting a vision for us from a distance. He is describing a way of life. He's describing a life that he himself 
casts himself into first for us. We read this Sermon on the Mount from a different side of the cross than Jesus' disciples heard it, right? So we know more than they knew. And this gospel was written from a different side of the cross than his disciples sat on when they first heard this teaching. And that must color everything that we understand about this sermon. There is far more going on here than what might meet the eye at first. Jesus is is describing himself. Everything that he calls us to is something that he is living toward or living out. Think about the first picture of of uh, reconciliation. Jesus tells this amazing story of someone who who becomes aware that when they're in worship, becomes aware that their brother has something against them. And so they leave their, their offering and they go, they leave the altar and they go to their brother. Now, friends, you have to think about this. Jesus was in Galilee when he used this illustration. There was only one altar that was permissible. It was the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. So what Jesus is thinking about here is a worshiper who has gone from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, at least 80 miles. Several days journey. He's gone to Jerusalem to make an offering. And he, he, right as he gets to the altar, he's right there. He's got the animal that he's purchased. And he realizes that his brother has something against him. He leaves. What Jesus is saying is, if this matters so much, estrangement is so... Uh, Reconciliation, let me state it positively, reconciliation matters so much that the greatest urgency is to leave that offering, go all the way to Galilee, reconcile with your brother and then return. That would take at least a week. And if you're sitting there as somebody in Galilee hearing that, you go, you got to be kidding me. But we know that Jesus... He's talking about himself, isn't he? We know. We know that the one who's teaching us this left the temple of heaven. Not because he knew that his brothers had something against him. Not because he had something to apologize for. But because he and his father had something against them. And he crossed a much greater distance, laid aside his glory, laid aside his prerog- the prerogatives of his deity. And he went on a much more arduous journey in order to reach the offended and in order to, to bring about reconciliation. He tells us about a debtor who is on the way to court with his accuser. And he says, before you get in front of the judge, make sure you reconcile. And his advice is to somebody who is a debtor to make up with their creditor. But we know, and this sounds crazy, right? It sounds crazy not to fight for your rights. But the one who's telling us this is the creditor who has come to the debtor before the debtor is in the court. The greatest creditor. And he is saying to the debtor, I have not only come to you, but I have come for you. And I am going to pay out from my own fortune your debt to me. And in the area of sexual purity and relational fidelity, right? He describes a man who breaks his marriage covenant with a wife who is otherwise pure. 
But we know that the one who is talking to us is the one faithful bridegroom who makes a marriage covenant with an unfaithful bride and who holds that covenant at the price of his own blood and whose gaze doesn't treat his bride as an object but purifies her. You see, it's because that that's who Jesus is. It's because that's his ministry. It's because he is the one who's gone ahead of us to do this. This is how he has the authority to speak so deeply to us because he is the will of God in these ways embodied and lived out. And the same is true with truth and our words. Friends, the only reason Jesus is standing on the earth is because God himself made a promise right into the heart of man's first sin and said there will be a seed of the woman who will conquer the serpent, who will crush his head. And now Jesus is standing there millennia later as the fulfillment of that promise as wave upon wave upon wave of unfaithfulness broke over that promise as centuries of unfaithfulness on the part of humanity, millions and billions of reasons that were given God to not keep that promise. And no matter what the cost, Jesus is keeping that promise. It's because God is true to the end and his yes is a yes and his no is a no that ours must be. And he has the right to insist upon that from us. And then in relationships, he calls us to live lives of unrestrained generosity and goodness. And he can speak into our lives to the very bottom, calling us to these things because he's gone much farther in these things than he would ever call us to go to, right? He calls us to love our enemies. Well, what did his love for his enemies cost him? You see, friends, you might be a non-Christian. You might be saying, boy, this just sounds so legalistic. This is not legalistic. Everything that I'm saying is a reflection on the cross. You know what Christianity is about? Christianity is about the unpacking of the significance of that event that happened in history. The event that happened at a particular place and a particular time in history in which Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Son of God incarnate, gave his life on the cross in substitution for his people for all ages to bear the penalty of their sins saving them from the wrath of God by absorbing it in their place himself, giving that life of perfect obedience in their place as their substitute to satisfy God's wrath and to open up reconciliation between God and anyone who will call upon Christ for salvation. And the proof that God the Father gives that Jesus is that only way, truth and life to salvation is by raising him from the dead. And he stands alive. You talk to people in this room. They have a relationship with a living Christ. A Christ who is alive. A Christ who's been raised. We're not talking about a relationship with somebody like George Washington, who we can know a lot of true things about, but we can never relate to him. No, no, no. What we're talking about in Christianity is something radically different. A relationship with a living person who has done these things for us. And what he is calling those of us who are his people to do and to be is simply the outworking, the ripple effects to ride the wave, if you will, of what he has already done for us. And so what do you do 
How do you live with this in conclusion? Two things. The first is we have to say this. Because Jesus held nothing back from us, there is nothing that we can hold back from him. So the, the call of obedience is exacting. But it is no greater than what he has already given up for you, Christian. There will be no call of obedience in your life as a Christian that will be to a place that Jesus has not already gone before you and farther than you. So because he has held nothing back from us, we can hold nothing back from him. Literally what it means to be Jesus' disciple is that everything is on the table. And I say that not lightly. And the second thing is, how do you, how do you live? Well, you, you live under the waterfall. These callings of Jesus that he's uh, explaining are not a ladder, right? I'm just going back to the image from last week. They're not a ladder that we are supposed to climb. We, 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 we can't think about transformation into this image that way. Because if that were what was going on here, then guess what? Our transformation into that image happens by our power, right? And that is not the gospel. This will be who we are. We will be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But the power for that comes not from us, but from Jesus. And so there's a sense in which the Christian life in both its beginning and its entire duration is about this crisis of the law being reenacted and re-experienced over and over and over again. This standard that is inflexible and that cannot be met except by the one Son who is already perfect and in our place for the other sons, for the glory of the Father, answers all of that and then gives himself to his people over and over and over again. And it, friends, it is as we live under the waterfall of the gospel, as we stay there, that we're going to be transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. Second Corinthians 3.18 Don't you dare Get out from under that waterfall. Don't you dare take these commandments and treat them like they're a ladder. You will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, sons of God, but it will be by the power of the Son of God for you and over you. Like Father, like His Son. Like Father, like all of His sons. Let's pray. Father, we can't do it. But your son has, and he can. His first gift to us is a new standing with you. His continuing gift to us is increasing resemblance to him. And his ultimate gift to us is that we will fully share his glory. Thank you for the greatness of his work and the greatness of your heart in sending him for us and to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.